this is a White Ridge Baptist podcast. Good morning. It's, uh, it's good to be in the church for the entire length of the service. I guess I'll have to stay till the end of the service. Um, primarily because ever since summer has started, our three kids have been working at uh, Camp Nudemic. So by the time 11 o'clock rolls around and all the singing is done, um, our family is getting into the van and getting ready for the two-hour drive out to Nudemic. And today, half the family is already on its way, and, uh, and I'm here, and, and Rachel decided to stay to, to support me, um, I guess. So, so she just got a bigger portion of my will assigned to her this morning. <laughs> Exactly. And now I have to give her $5 because I mentioned her name in the service. So, <laughs> Well, we've been, uh, we've been in, this ser- in this series uh, just for a few weeks now uh, called Follow Me as I Follow Christ. And the intent of this series is to look at a number of people in the Bible and how they lived their life, how they followed God, and to learn some lessons from that. And up to this point, uh, we've looked at the life of Abraham. Dave Barton talked about him. And then we looked at the life of Jacob, uh, which Pastor Terry uh, did. And today we're going going to look at the life of Joshua, the great military commander of the Israelite people. It is said that there isn't any other military leader like Joshua in the Bible. So we're going to look at at, uh, some of his. And I I hope that uh, you'll make it a priority to attend or at least listen to the sermons on these lives because I... I, I trust that you'll be able to relate to one or two or more of these individuals. And the lessons that they have to teach, you'll be able to take away something that will help you in your own walk with, with the Lord. Now I'm going to share something with you before we get into, into the life of Joshua that uh, I heard Pastor Adrian Rogers say a long time ago, and I'm not sure how many of you remember Pastor Adrian Rogers. He was a Baptist minister with Southern Baptist Convention, um, had a great command of the English language, and he, people have published books about Adrianisms, about the phrases that he used in his sermons. But I looked at some of his teaching, and these are words of wisdom from a, from a seasoned pastor in how we receive the Word of God, whether it is going to the Scripture or sitting and listening to a podcast or a sermon or something. But he basically said, when you receive the Word of God, receive it with a reflective spirit. And what does that mean? It means that when you're listening to a sermon, when you're listening to, a, to someone preach, or when you're listening to the Word of God, whether you're reading it or, or, or listening to a Bible commentary, what are you looking for? Well, look for, is there a promise to claim? Or is there a lesson to learn? Or is there a blessing to enjoy? Is there a command that you're supposed to obey? Is there a sin that we are to avoid? Or is there a new thought that the Holy Spirit gives you that you can incorporate into your own growth as a believer? And I am willing to put money on the fact that when you come to the Scripture, you will receive at least one of those, if not more. So we have to be reflective, and we have to be in the spirit of teaching whenever we come to the Word of God. So having said that, 
Let's see what Joshua, well, who was Joshua, first of all? I know we know Joshua as the wall of Jericho guy, right? We sang the song about that a few minutes ago. Um, Joshua was not just the wall of Jericho guy. If you read about him, he is splattered throughout Moses' books. You know, he is in Numbers, he's in Deuteronomy, he's in Exodus, he's got his own book in the Bible, and that's a big thing as well. So we see that he is present everywhere in the Old Testament, especially in the first five books. And in all of that, there are different roles that we see him carrying out. So first of all, one of his characteristics is that he was a son. He was a son and often referred to as Joshua, the son of Nun. He was born into a godly family, and we know that because people in that generation, the Bible often talks about that generation because they were faithful. People in Moses' generation were faithful. Joshua's parents would have trained him to be a faithful man of God, and we see the evidence of that when he rises through the ranks and becomes Moses' second-in-command and eventually a leader for the Israelites. He was a slave. He would have been born in the time of slavery under the Egyptians. He would have no doubt been oppressed by the taskmasters, been whipped or whatever. Other oppression was being carried out against the Israelites at that time. So he would have grown up in that. He would have witnessed the breakdown of society that happens when a society worships idols. And we see that in his leadership that he makes a very bold proclamation when he says, we will serve the Lord. My household will serve the Lord. He was a soldier, and like I already said, he is considered to be one of the greatest military leaders that Israel has ever known. He, he planned campaigns, he was good at training his soldiers, he used spies, but most of all, he was a good military, military commander because he relied on God. He prayed and he trusted God in all of his battles. He defeated 31 kings after they entered the land of Canaan. And there's only one instance where he was deceived into making a treaty with a group of people, the Gibeonites, who did not, who he did not destroy, and yet God was merciful to him to say, that is okay, you just enslave them, but don't annihilate them, as he did with the other 31. But I can't think of any other military leader who can claim 31 military campaigns and every single one of them was a success. He was a servant. Uh, he's often referred to in the Old Testament as the servant of Moses. He had a very close relationship with Moses, and you notice that over and over and over again. When Moses sends out the first military campaign against a king called Amalek, he picks Joshua to lead that campaign, and Joshua is successful. He was a spy. There's the other song, the Sunday school song, 12 men went into Can uh, in to spy in Canaan, Ten were bad and two were good, and who were the two good men? One was Joshua, and the other was Caleb. So he was a spy. Now, interestingly enough, before that campaign into Canaan, Joshua's name was Oshea, or Hoshea. And then Ju uh, Moses changes his name to Joshua. What's the big deal about that? Well, Oshea means help or salvation. But Joshua means God's help and God's salvation. So the Holy Spirit leads Moses to rename Hosea to Joshua because when people were under his leadership, every time they would think about Joshua, 
every time they would talk about Joshua, every time they were working with him, they would be reminded of God's salvation. So we see that his name is changed to, to be an archetype of Jesus Christ, God's salvation. And of course, he is considered a savior because Moses brought the people to the entry point of Canaan, and then he died, but it was actually Joshua that God commissioned to take his people into the promised land. People have called him to be a great statesman. They've called him to be a saint. You know, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He walked in the presence of God. Uh, he was indwelt by the word of God. And he was always obedient to the promptings of the Spirit. And so when he died at the age of 110 years old, there was great mourning across the land and in all the people of Israel. And when we read the final words that are written about him, God calls him not a servant of Moses, but a servant of the Lord. Joshua, the servant of the Lord. I think that's the best thing you can have on your gravestone. And when God calls you that, there's nothing better than that. So jo Joshua is called the servant of the Lord. So that's that's Joshua, a little bit in a nutshell for who he was and what his place was in Israel. But this morning we're going to look at a few, of, few things in his life and, and see how we can incorporate some of the teachings from his life into ours. I'm going to share with you four things, but the first thing that I want to talk to you about is laying a foundation of faith. Now, the, the bullet that you see is, is a positive statement, laying the foundation of faith. But this was actually one of the failures of Joshua and his generation, the elders of his generation. After Moses' death, Joshua became the leader of Israel. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He had been trained and mentored by Moses into his role. And he'd been in leadership roles throughout his life as a young man and even growing up after that. He and the other elders in that generation had sat under the mentorship of men like Moses and Aaron and others at that time and had learned from them on how to be leaders and how to serve God. Joshua is described, as I mentioned, a few times as a servant of Moses. And one of the ways we see how close he was and how much under, under Moses' guidance he was is when we see this instance where Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the tablets. And I've always read the passage and completely glossed over this and always imagined that it was Moses who came back down the mountain and, and was by himself. Except that we know for sure that Moses was the only one who met with the Lord on the top of the mountain and received it. But when you read in Exodus 32, it says that as Moses was coming down with the tablets in his hands, Joshua said to him, there's some kind of noise in the camp. So Joshua had already left the camp. He did not know what was going on in the camp. And he had walked up the mountain with Moses up to a certain point, And beyond that, Moses had gone on on his own. So Moses, on this absolutely incredible journey, still takes Joshua with him. So Moses had a great influence on developing Joshua's leadership and guiding him on a regular, on a constant basis. However, when Joshua and the elders of that generation died, there was a gap 
There was a leadership vacuum in Israel. That generation, Joshua and the other elders in that generation, had neither prepared individuals to lead God's people, nor prepared the nation to follow God. And we see that, we see that the evidence of that is in the very next book, in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, we read this. And all the generation also were gathered to their fathers. This is Joshua's generation. They've now died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. One generation. One generation. It's absolutely astounding that the first generation is walking with the Lord, is obeying the Lord, and the very next generation is not. And that's a warning for us. That's a warning for everyone sitting in this room. Parents, grandparents, mature believers, leadership, church leadership. It is absolutely critical, it is absolutely critical for the present generation to lay a foundation of faith in the lives of our next generations. It is absolutely vital that we lay this firm foundation that the next generation can stand up on and be followers of God. Now, I didn't provide any demographics when I said present generation. I didn't give an age range. And that's because every believer is accountable for discipling the next generation. If you're a parent, your most important responsibility, obviously, is to teach your children about God, to live a life that demonstrates how to live faithfully in God's presence. And you can start doing them from a very young age and still the truths of God's word into your children's life even when they're very, very young. Because when you instill the truth in someone, you don't have to worry about the lies. You don't have to teach them what's wrong as long as they know what's right. And so it is our responsibility to instill those truths in the lives of our children. They're less likely to be de deceived by the lies of the world when their heart and their mind is filled with the truth of God. So plant these seeds from a young age. And one way to do that, obviously, is to make conversations about God, about Jesus, about the scriptures, about church, normal in your homes. It should not be limited to a 10, 15-minute devotion time in the morning or in the afternoon or at night time. That should not be the, the limit for it. That should be the beginning. And in every conversation, there should be a biblical worldview that is presented to your children and demonstrated in your lives. It also means that you may have to exercise hyper-vigilance in terms of what your children are exposed to. And of course, with age, there are times when you make a decision that you shall not watch this, and there are times when you say you can watch this, but we'll have a conversation about the content. You know, in our, in our home, I think we only ever banned two children's programs for our kids. And one of those was Caillou. <laughs> now, I don't know if you let your kids watch that. If you do, I'm so sorry. But I think Caillou is probably the most annoying 
child character in any kid's TV. And kids, I'm sorry if you like him. I really, really apologize. But we completely banned Caillou in our home. And kids love that. And then the second one was our kids were watching VeggieTales, like pretty much kids from that generation. And we got to a point after watching quite a few of these, and we were watching the one with, about David and Goliath, and we realized that our kids thought that David was really named Dave, and he was a junior asparagus. And Goliath was a big, mean pickle. And we thought, no, no, this is, this is not right. You know, these are, David is a man of God. God holds him in high esteem and calls him man after his own heart. We don't want our kids to grow up thinking that Esther was a blueberry or uh, David was a, was a young junior asparagus or anything. So we cut out VeggieTales after that as well. And you know, as far as I can tell, uh, I don't think there are any lasting emotional scars or any of our children because we stopped them from watching Caillou and, and VeggieTales. But you have to be super vigilant. I like to keep, uh, keep a bit of a tab on what's happening in media and content and stuff, and I can tell you, parents today, I think your challenge is even bigger than it was for my generation uh, in terms of what your children are exposed to and what, uh, what they're receiving from their screens and from their schools. So parents, grandparents, absolutely critical that you lay a foundation of faith in your children, grandchildren. The same principle actually applies to every believer. You know, if you're a young person, a young adult, you don't have a family, you're single, and you're wondering, who can I invest in? Sheila would love to talk to you. 20 feet behind this room is a group of people from babies all the way up to high school who can use your mentorship, who you can invest in. If you're a young couple, maybe you can take a young adult under your wing and help them lay a firm foundation. We see evidence of that in our leadership, especially our pastors. Doug's investing so much time and energy and life into individuals who are leading various ministries in the church. Rudy is investing in youth who are not only teaching biblical truths at our youth program, but they're actually teaching outside of this church. And many of them are doing that at Camp Nudemic this year and in the, in the years past. By the way, Pastor Rudy was the guest speaker this past week, and uh, I think he did a fantastic, fantastic job. I got to tell you, I heard it from everyone that I talked to that you were absolutely fantastic, and people loved having you there. So thank you, Rudy, for going out and ministering to those kids who were, uh, who were there this past week. And then Pastor, uh, Pastor Doug, we've talked, already talked about Pastor Kevin. Many of the people who are on these worship teams have been mentored in Saturday worship jams by Pastor Kevin. And actually, many of them who would be leading worship services here have been mentored by Kevin while he's on sabbatical. Sheila is investing in people and young people into loving young children that are in their care. And I didn't forget about Pastor Terry because nearly 27 years ago, when I came to know the Lord in Thunder Bay, a very young Pastor Terry Jank decided to invest in me. And he mentored me, and he taught me, and he gave me all kinds of books to read, and then he would come out and play squash with me, and I would crush him, and he would still come back. 
but he invested in me. And then he took the biggest risk that a pastor can take in Thunder Bay, letting me stand in his pulpit and preach. So a couple of Sundays ago when he spoke and he talked about all the different times that he had to humble himself, I was almost in tears because I could, I was listening to the sermon, I could think, do you not know all the people that you have impacted? And so we invest in the lives of individuals who come after us. And that's the way the church is supposed to work. So the first lesson we learned is that Joshua and his generation became complacent and they did not invest in the lives of the next generation and they fell away. And my warning to us is let that not be our legacy. Let that not be our legacy. Let our legacy be the next three things that we see in Joshua's life. What do we see in Joshua's life? The great things. Well, first and foremost, he believed God and God's promises. We see Joshua appearing, as I mentioned, in many of these books of the Bible. In Numbers chapter 13, people have passed through the Red Sea. The Israelites are now at the, at the edge of the Promised Land. And Joshua is part of the team of 12 that Moses picks out, leaders from every tribe, one, one person from every tribe. Joshua is from his tribe. And the 12 men go into Canaan, they are there for 40 days, they scout out the land, and they come back, and 10 of them give a poor report. There are giants in this land, the fruit is too big, we are like grasshoppers in our own eyes, we will be crushed when we go in that land. 10 give that report. And two, two say, let's go. This is God's promise that we will inherit this land, let's go. What happened? How is it possible that 12 men witness the exact same thing, they see the same people, they walk through the same land, they experience the same circumstances, they see the same cities, but they have two very opposite views of what the future looks like. One perspective, I believe, shared by these 10 men, looked at the land and focused on the facts. They looked at the land and focused on the facts. Their fascination with facts resulted in a failure of their faith. Their fascination with facts resulted in failure of faith. The facts weren't wrong. No one disputed that there were giants in the land or that they were big men, the cities were fortified, and it was a tough challenge. But they looked at the facts and allowed fear to overcome their faith. The second perspective, which is shared by Joshua and Caleb, looked at the exact same facts. Giants, fortified cities, tough crowd, but we can do this. Why? Because their focus remained on God and his promises. They had experienced the same faithfulness of God as the other 10 men, but they remembered it. God had said, I will take you out of Egypt. I will take you out of slavery, and he did that. They came to the, to the edge of the Red Sea, and God said, don't worry, you will walk through it. And they did that. They ran out of food. For 40 years, God fed them. They ran out of water. God brought water out of a rock. For 40 years, they walked and did not have to go shopping for new clothes or shoes. This was God's faithfulness that they're going to experience. 
They had seen God's providence. And even from all the stuff that was still to come, they could just look back and say, God just destroyed the Egyptian army. God brought us out of slavery. God brought us through, through the Red Sea. God helped us defeat Amalek, and therefore God can defeat these giants. That was their perspective. But, as we know, the fear of the ten men overcame the faith of the two, and the rest is history. The Israelites wandered for 40 years in wilderness, and every single one of those adults who had come out of slavery, walked through the Red Sea, defeated Amalek, died in the wilderness. They saw the promised land, but weren't able to enter it because they did not trust God. And so our lesson here is to believe God and believe his promises. He's never failed to meet a single promise ever, and he never will. He is always going to be faithful to his promises. If he has said it, he will do it. And you can take that to the bank. You can remember all the times in your own life when you've been given a promise and God has fulfilled it. When he kept his word. Even though the facts were scary, the medical report was scary, the financial statements from your business were scary, your marriage was on the rocks, whatever the case was, whatever trial and trauma and trouble you were heading into, you could look back at your life and know that God was faithful and fulfilled his promises. Keep your eyes on the Savior, just like Peter did. Right in the middle of the boat, big storm, big waves, big wind, and Jesus said, come out of the water, uh, come out of the boat, walk on the water. Circumstances didn't change. Peter steps out of the boat, keeps his eyes on the Savior, and walks on water. And you know, it's interesting, as soon as he takes his eyes off Jesus and looks at his circumstances, he starts to sink again. Joshua and Caleb believed in God's promises and were faithful. So can you. So can we all. God is still the same. His promises are still the same. Now, can I just share with you one promise before we move on to the next, next um, piece here? In the book of uh, Isaiah, there is a promise that was originally written for, for the nation of Israel, but I believe we can claim it as well as God's people. It says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, and here's the promise, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. Are you redeemed? Do you have Jesus Christ in your life? Have you claimed the redemption that comes from knowing him? If you are, then God is saying, fear not. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. And then he makes this proclamation, you are mine. You are mine. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are his. And nothing that happens around you can change that. He holds you in the palm of his hand. When life is throwing you around, he's got you. When your boat is in the middle of the sea and the waves are high and the winds are strong, you can step out of the boat as you keep your eyes on the Savior. 
And that's just one promise in the entire book. This is a book of God's promises. And every one of them is true. So, second thing, believe God and believe in his promises. The third thing that we see in, in um, Joshua's life is that he obeyed God. He just obeyed God. You know, when they got to, got to the land of Canaan and he sent out two spies and they discovered that Jer the city of Jericho was a fortified city. It was strong. It was militarily impossible to breach and break in. Joshua did not stumble upon military strategy. In fact, he thought about God. He went to God and said, what should we do? That was his strategy. That was his best strategy. And God said, well, God gave him a very unconventional advice. It was not a great military advice for if you talk to military leaders. But God said, well, on day one, take your armed men, put them at the head of the column, take the Ark of the Covenant, and then go and circle the city once. Do that for six days. On the seventh day, do it seven times. At the end of it, make a loud shout with the trumpets. Now, that's not conventional military advice. That is not how you breach cities. Someone asked me, someone asked me about this, and they said, do you think Joshua had concerns about this strategy? And I thought about that for a minute, and I thought, no. I think Joshua had enough faith in God's provision and God's protection and God's promises that as soon as God said, this is the strategy, he started to organize the march. He said, let's go. This is, this is the strategy. This is what we're doing. Let's go and do it. I don't think there was any doubt in his mind that God was going to deliver Jericho to them. He knew that God would come through. He'd seen that. He'd witnessed that, not just when they came out of Egypt into the wilderness, but over the 40 years in wilderness, he had repeatedly seen that. He had learned that it is better to obey God and look foolish in the eyes of the world than to be wise in the eyes of the world and disobey God. And there are times, I think, in our own lives when we come to these Jerichos in our life. You know, it could be um, health. You go for a normal checkup, and, and I think the, the folks on the children's video said, you know, they discussed their medical woes. Uh, it's part of life. It happens. We get a medical report about someone we love that we don't like. That becomes our Jericho. It's insurmountable. And yet what is not changing from when Joshua invaded Jericho to today is the faithfulness of God. He is still the same God. And the challenges that we encounter that seem impossible for us to tackle and take on, God takes them on. Sometimes he asks us to do very unconventional things. Many, many, many years ago, I was in a job that I loved. I was in the city where my family was, and it came to a point between my superior and myself. It became a question of uh, ethical practices, but I did not want to leave my job. It was beautiful. I was managing a computer store. Every time a new CPU came out, it went into my computer to test it for customers, of course. You know, I didn't want to leave my job. And God said, leave the job and leave the city. And I thought I heard, heard, heard him wrong. 
are you sure, God, you want me to leave this job and leave this city? Yes. And we went back and forth. And finally, I left. And honestly, the best decision of my life. Just because God said to do something that was not conventional, and you do it. Obeying God is not always easy. In fact, it can be downright hard at times. But it is always rewarding. And it is always fulfilling. You know, there's almost a cycle between these last two points where we experience God's faithfulness, which strengthens our faith. Then we encounter a Jericho, and we look at that, and we go to God, and God resolves that for us, and God walks us through that. And it strengthens our faith, and we trust God even more, and then we encounter the next Jericho, and it's a cycle. It's a cycle of growth in our lives. So what's the third thing? third thing is to obey God. And the last thing, last thing we see in Joshua's life is that he served God. He was a servant of Moses. He served his people. He served God all his life. And when he got closer to the end of his life, he gathered the people of Israel and he reminded them of all the great things that God had accomplished in his life, all the great deeds that he had done. And in the last chapter of his book, in verses 14 and 15, that were referenced earlier as well. This is what he says to his people. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether, your God, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And then he makes this proclamation. He says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What's he saying? He's saying, I don't care what the pressure is from the culture. I don't care what everyone else is doing. I don't care if even the people that I have lived life with up to 110 years almost I don't care if they choose to walk away from God, but I will not walk away from God. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He planted his flag, he raised his banner, and he said, this is the way I'm going to live, and this is the way my family is going to live. And I think that's the same proclamation that every believer, every Christian today needs to make. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If you're a Christian, are you willing to make that proclamation? Are you willing to stand in the public square and say, I serve the Lord? Are you willing to do that? And I'm not talking about the kind of conflict we've seen in the church and between the church and the government in the last two years. I am talking about, can I still proclaim that Jesus is Lord? Can I still proclaim that this is his word? Can I still proclaim and go to church to fellowship with other believers. Can you make that proclamation? I will serve the Lord. Are you willing to stand up for the truth of God's word? Are you willing to stand up for your faith? Many, many, many years ago, this is back in Pakistan, and this is what, this is what, what blows my mind. Pakistan is a Muslim country. It is unashamedly Muslim. And if you're a Christian, you're marginalized. 
I was in university, we were writing our exams, and one of our exams was on Easter Sunday, because Easter Sunday is not a holiday. And a number of Christian students, probably 10 or 12 of them across the entire state, drove a petition that Christians should not have to write exams or attend classes on Easter. And they kept relentlessly pushing it, and guess what happened? The government changed the policy. No exams for Christians on an, on an Easter Sunday. And I find it absolutely astounding that Christians in North America just roll over and not, not stand up for our faith. But are you, as an individual, willing to do that? So how do we serve the Lord? The question, what does it mean to serve the Lord? And you know, for someone, someone like me, I'm a spreadsheet guy, I'm a list guy, I think the temptation for someone like me when answering a question like this is to produce a list, is to produce a checklist to say, don't dance, don't sing, don't smoke, don't drink, and then do charity, do volunteer work, do service at the church, and you're fine. But I think that takes away from the spirit of serving the Lord. We don't serve God because he needs our service. We serve God because we want to partner with him. We want to work with him. We want to be under his will and do what he asks us to do. And we, so we serve God the best when we live our, our lives in obedience to the two greatest commandments that Jesus gave. We serve God the best when we follow the two greatest commandments that Jesus did. In Mark, in Gospel of Mark, Jesus said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself and there is no other commandment greater than these. If we form our life to follow and obey these two rules, we serve God the best. It is not a matter of checklists. It is not a matter of bullet points. It is not a matter of that thou shalt and thou shalt not. It is a lifestyle. It is a life of obedience to God's commandments, these two commandments. And it is when we do these two that we serve God the best. As the worship team starts to make their uh, way up, let me just let me just wrap up and remind you of the four things that we looked at in Joshua's life. Joshua and his generation were complacent in laying a foundation for the next generation. So that's a warning for us, making sure that we lay a foundation of faith. Believe God and his promises. He has never failed. He never will fail. Obey God. Even when it sounds unconventional, even when it sounds non-standard advice, follow God and obey him. And lastly, serve God. And you serve him by following the two greatest commandments that Jesus gave. Amen. Amen. In response to that good word, I'm just going to invite you again to stand as we... Uh we close our, our, our service here today in worship.
You are here.